listening to Ding Dong Darkness Time Season 2, Stephen King Boogaloo. I gathered several of my most well-read friends together to discuss many of our favorite works by the master of the macabre himself. If you like what you hear, tell the world. In the meantime, let's talk some scary stories. Oh, and beware the spoilers, folks. They're a doozy. Hello, Atlanteans! The bell has rung. It is officially darkness time, and I'm your host, Allison Dixon, and I'm here to bring you another dissection of a Stephen King work I'm willing to guess is one of his less widely read. And more is the pity because this book is probably one of the most unusual King has produced, in large part because it seems to defy strict categorization as to what kind of book it actually is. Uh, But we'll get to that a little later in the discussion. The book I'm referring to, of course, is Hearts in Atlantis, King's very artful and honest examination of the impact his generation has had on the landscape of the world, uh, particularly around the time of the Vietnam War. Uh, but also in its aftermath. Like a lot of Stephen King's stories, we have some elements of the supernatural, but there is also a lot of realism that feels not only extremely raw and timely, but also largely autobiographical. I might even go so far as to say this is Stephen King's most underrated book. And if you haven't read it, you're truly missing out on a piece of brilliant writing and social commentary that I believe will resonate with even the young people of today. Joining me today uh, for the discussion is Jacqueline Johanna Garver. Uh, She is the communications specialist at a national marketing organization and a freelance writer. She's also a poet and author. Her first poetry chapbook, The Men I Never, is due to be published by Dancing Girl Press in Chicago later this summer. Yay, by the way. Uh, She recently signed with uh, Savannah Brooks of the Jennifer DiChiara, I hope I pronounced that right, Uh, literary agency for her contemporary fiction, which again, yay! Um, And she's been a fan of Stephen King since she was 18 and has been a constant reader ever since. So you, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited. And I never stopped to think that this probably is one of King's lesser read books. And that's so sad. And it's interesting, too, because when you go and read the reviews for this book, they're usually quite glowing. And I think, though, it was a hard sell from the title being a little like unusual and kind of hard to penetrate. Can't really tell what it is by what it's called. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those books that rewards you for taking a chance and, and diving in because you end up with this really richly rewarding experience that pays out both for old-time fans of King who know a lot of his signatures and people that have never read him that have possibly sworn him off because they thought he was too scary. Because this is not a horror story. But first, I want to mention that I met you uh, through another author friend of mine, uh, the incredible Paula D. Ash, uh, who has recently re- released an incredible collection of short stories called We Are Here to Hurt Each Other, uh, which all of you should go out and buy right now, by the way. But when I put out the call for folks who wanted to join me on an episode of this season, Paula immediately tagged you in that discussion, yes. Jacqueline. So, uh, And I'm so glad she did, because not only are you a big Stephen King fan, but you are also a fellow tower junkie which is the dark tower fandom (laughs) as it's called uh and so i knew we had to join forces because we both share that 
deep love of the Dark Tower. But that's not in this season because it's just what it's just too much to talk about. There's no way. Oh, my God, we need a whole season. (laughs) 100%. 100%. And I I was so excited. How do you know Paula? If I can like throw that in there? I came across Paula and I believe it was on Facebook. We had a group called Ladies of Horror. I think it was and I think she was just part of that group. And we had just have a lot of mutual friends among the horror community. Mm -hmm. And such a great great group of people um how did you meet her the same way or um we both used to work at a community college in indiana and we have some mutual friends so we kind of met up through a few different spots and um yeah she's i think the most brilliant human being i've ever met in real life oh. she's so smart and i just love talking to her and picking her brain she's amazing i need to get her on this show be great if she could come on and you can come on and we could all just kind of chat together because um she's she's wonderful actually and she's also uh from my neck of the woods in ohio originally Mm -hmm. too so when we learned that we kind of shared the old same stopping grounds uh at one point and just in addition to her being such a cool person. I'm incredibly privileged to know her. And I think everybody could say the same about her. So go read her books, guys. Or especially, gosh, they will give you nightmares. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She's brutally and unflinching. Uh, Maybe one day, there will be a whole podcast dedicated to her work because she deserves it. But you know, as we discovered that we couldn't really talk too much about the Dark Tower, we thought this book might be a good compromise because it gives us a little bit of that Dark Tower lore. Um, There's some little Easter eggs in there for Dark Tower fans, but uh, it also is just a really good book. So yeah, you don't have to like King or horror or supernatural to appreciate this. I could see history buffs really being into this too. Oh, absolutely. I think anybody who likes good contemporary fiction, it it Mm -hmm. is, uh, King, I think at his most self-examining and social commentary making, in a sense. Mm -hmm. I think he did a, he did a bit of this in, uh, 11-22-63, which Mm -hmm. was his kind of whole take on the Kennedy assassination with the, with a twist. But this just has a raw honesty and and comes, I think, from the heart of somebody who lived through that very tumultuous time uh, Mm -hmm. of the 1960s, which as I was writing, you know, this story uh, outline or the show outline, I was like, yeah, the 1960s, the darkest time of, you know, the modern day, probably. And then here we are uh, with the 2020s, just really uh, giving it a run for its money. So, but if anything, it makes it like more more relevant, I think, to talk about some elements of this book, because what we find here are themes that uh, seem to tie back to not sitting back or what can happen when you sit back and let evil take over or the good that can happen when people stand up for each other to do the right thing. Um, There's a lot of that. So many different themes in this of, of knowing when to go along and knowing when to fight back. And if ever there was a time of American history that demonstrates that, I think it was in the 1960s when a lot of young people were finally getting hip to the notion that, hey, Uncle Sam isn't always right and kids are getting drafted and sent over there to die. And it was a grave, grave injustice. And, you know, a lot of people lost their lives fighting the various fights of that period. So I 
just want to lay down some brass tacks before we get started on talking about the meat of the story. And I'll have some questions for you as we go. So first of all, Hearts in Atlantis uh, was published in 1999. And it's a collection of novellas and short stories that are linked by a cast of characters who are all growing up in the 1960s. Uh, We see them first as children, and then they go off to college and or war. And we later see some of them as adults. Um, I feel like we'll be spending probably the most time of this discussion on the first two stories of the book as they are technically novellas. But also, I feel like they're the most consequential overall in demonstrating King's larger points uh, that he's trying to make. That's not to say that the other stories aren't great. It's just that uh, these are probably the the weightiest of them. But first, I want to ask you, Jacqueline, when did you first encounter this book? When and where? And what did you think at the time when you read it? So I discovered Hearts in Atlantis when I was a freshman in college. I went to Kent State University. Uh, its own having its own yeah. uh, connection to this era, <laughs> and you also and, are in Ohio. That's a Ohio connection again. So hey, yeah, I, you know, go Midwest girls, Yay. Midwest girls. <laughs> um, I had read two King books prior to this. I liked them fine. Neither one of them kind of like you know riled me up or got me all excited. Um, I picked this up. I had just gotten to Kent. I went to the library. I was looking for something to read. And I saw a paperback copy of the one with Anthony Hopkins on the cover. And I'm like, oh, I like Anthony Hopkins. Oh, let's try this one. Yeah. And then I read it and my head exploded. And I just, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know fiction could be like this. I didn't know books could be like this. Um, I didn't know they could make me feel those things. I didn't know they could be structured in that way. I mean, I have always been an avid reader reading, you know, chapter books since I pretty much was literate. Um, but this is the first book I remember doing something different that didn't Mm -hmm. just tell you a narrative, but jumped around so much. And it wasn't, I mean, the story is important, but it isn't about the story as much as it's about the emotion, but it gets into that emotion without being preachy, preachy to (laughs) wishy-washy. I mean, there's a way to tell this that's really sappy. Mm -hmm. And this is not that. No. And I was not a political teen. I didn't know anything about anything. Um, so it wasn't even the Vietnam the Vietnam aspects were almost just they, they weren't important to me when I read it when I was 18. It was right. the relationships and the characters, which is what King does well. I mean, any I think most King lovers can point to his characterization and his the way he writes children. I mean, for me, I love the way he writes children. Agreed. His coming of age stories are are my favorite. But just yeah, I didn't know fiction could be this way. I didn't know books could be this way. Um, so yeah, that was, that was the first time I read it when I was 18, I went to Kent for newspaper journalism and, mm-hmm. um, I had no inclination that I would ever want to write novels or, or be an author because that's an impossible thing to do. No one can actually do that for a living. So why would I try it? Let's be realistic and go into journalism that I can mm-hmm. do. And truly the, despite how much this book affected me, my first reread was three months ago for this podcast. Wow. I have oh, read wow. this two times <laughs> and reading it as a 39 year old woman who is actually potentially could be an author at some point, maybe, and has, you know, is a grown up with life experience. I was going to say, reading. yeah, you've lived, you've lived some chunk of life since it's, then. It's a very different experience. Very, very different experience. And um, as an important more important mm-hmm. as meaningful. I mean, 
I don't know. I, you, you, when I read it at 18, it was so, you know, it's about the plot. It's about the story and the characters, but now to read it and look at what he did with the structure of it is mm-hmm. so fascinating. Like I, I know technically it's novellas and short stories, but it's a novel to me. It is a continuation. You know, it just happens to focus on different people and do, you know, time jumps and geography jumps. It really is unique. And, you know, I was, I'm a, I'm a, probably about three or four years older than you. So we seem very similar in terms of where we were in our lives when we came uh, to the story. Cause I was, uh, I was like 19 or 20 at the time when this book came out. Yeah. 99 around 20. At that point in my life, I was freshly uh, out of my house living in Washington state. I was getting ready to get married. I was very young, married, very young, you know, um, and my life was going through a lot of upheaval. So when I read the book for the first time, I think I connected with it on a very surface level, like, like you did. I really, really loved the first story because I was just coming off of probably another reread of the Dark Tower books. And I believe he was starting to release newer books in that series around the same time. So I was in Dark Tower heaven at that point. That was my main escape from life was just if I needed to get away from the world, I'd start reading the Dark Tower. I was just obsessed. So I knew this one. Actually, no, I don't think I did know ahead of time that this book had a Dark Tower connection, because where would I have even heard that? I wasn't really online quite as much at that period. And so I think it was just a fun discovery when I start reading this and I start seeing, you know, these references that are popping up and I'm like, oh, and then the next story started to get a sense of, okay, this is not following, it's not like a collection. And so that's where I want to talk about like the structure of this thing as you did, because it seems to defy classification. It is not so much a, it's not what you would think of as a collection, like to, of like a normal collection of stories, where yeah. it's just an assemblance of short fiction. It's all connected, and they're all very different lengths. There's no rhyme or reason to the length of these stories that they're as long as they need to be. So they can mm-hmm. either be novella length or super short. Like you can, you know, read it in ten minutes. What's amazing about it is the way he links all the characters together through yes. these very different stories that happen in very different parts of time and the way that some of these characters meet back up under interesting, almost completely accidental circumstances or completely wild, like we're fighting in the same jungle in Vietnam circumstances, even though we're from different, very different places. So and there's objects and other things that get kind of recalled and and uh, God, he just the way he plays with theme. So somebody mm-hmm. in my research or I came across, they called it a mosaic novel. And I feel like mm-hmm. that was a beautiful term because what's a mosaic if uh, not a collection of various shapes and sizes and things just kind of fit together and to make a complete picture. And I feel like that's what this mm-hmm. book is and why it's so unique. I mean, so I had asked my uh, little thing of questions I sent you if you'd ever seen any other books that do this. I have not. Yeah, the only the only ones I could come up with. Um, I like Elizabeth Stroud a lot, and and um, Oliver Olive Ketteridge and Anything Is Possible kind of does a similar thing where you've got a this is the cast of characters, and we're just going to tell it, it's a they are very much collection of stories, short stories, mm-hmm. and you're getting um, stories about different people in this town, and sometimes the main character in one pop up as a secondary character in another story. Love it. Um, 
So it's that those are the only Elizabeth Stroud is the only other author I could come up with that has done this. I'm sure others. Oh yeah, I mean, like I would imagine they'd probably be more in the literary world, the that that kind of um, literary fiction world, I should say that that particular genre. I imagine there's been a lot of work done that way. Uh, so I feel like that's King's way again of sort of straying into that particular world to show people that hey i'm not just the scary peddler you know i i do other things i can do so much this keeps coming up throughout this season in particular because we've highlighted stories like from different seasons and and how you know those particular stories like shawshank redemption and the body Mm -hmm. are not typical what people think of first when they think of king and and we're bringing this one in and then soon uh chris and i will be talking about uh everything's eventual a couple of the stories from that collection so it's fun to highlight these things because i i feel like they a lot of people who are either deep into the king lore like they know these things but maybe people who are listening to this might not be and maybe we'll consider it so um i've been i told jacqueline before we started recording that i have been struggling so much and she and i have had to put off this recording a couple times due to various (laughs) scheduling conflicts and things like that um so i'm so glad finally that we're finally able to do this but it's also that whole time i've been like how am i going to present this book in a way that does it proper justice to really show how much we love this book and encourage other people to love it as well, um, rather than just tell you, oh, this book's amazing. But it's so hard to figure out how we want to tackle this thing. So what I decided to do is we're just going to start with the first story. Mm-hmm. There's five of them, by the way. So the first one is the is the longest one. The one that needs for the movie. Yes. And that's the one that, yes, you would see adapted, the one with An- Anthony Hopkins, Hearts in Atlantis. Um, and I think that came out in 2004. 2004 uh somewhere around there um and yeah it only adapted the first story which is called low men in yellow coats and it also adapted the denouement of that story which is the final story in this book which is called heavenly shades of night are falling and it's so it's a book ended essentially and then the stories that are in between are the ones that kind of pick up with different characters um and and different points in their lives so with low men in yellow coats i think a lot of people will sort of recognize the flavor of this kind of story we saw a little bit of this with like the body for instance it's a very looks through it childhood 1960 um they're in harwich connecticut working class town and it's following around a a group of 12 year old ish kids uh that are fresh on summer break from school we have bobby garfield he's living in a small apartment with his single mother liz um and she's not exactly easy to live with is she Uh, (laughs) i think i actually have piece of work written in my my notes and i'll tell you what i like you by the way i read this book when it first came out and then i reread it when we agreed we were going to do this i actually listened to the audiobook uh that was narrated by william hurt um Mm. for most of these stories and then Stephen King himself narrates a, a couple of them as well. But William Hurt's narration is fascinating to me because he sounds very weary as he's reading and it just has mm-hmm. such a a loose like 
way of doing it that is almost kind of weirdly theatrical at the same time where it's like oh it's just William Hurt the dude who moves a pinky finger and he's like winning an Oscar I don't know I mean that's kind of <laughs> Hurt, Hurt, Hurt <laughs> was just one of those guys say what you will about the man's problems he was not the best person um, by all accounts but he could he worked his craft very well and uh, he did it very well in this in this particular reading so if you are in the market for a good audiobook i recommend picking this one up um but anyway the way liz is portrayed i grew up with some very strong-minded women in my life and liz kind of brought that home to me a little bit that feeling of like they have their opinions, they can be a bit domineering, they, you know, you feel like very small in the shadow of this woman. And that's kind of how Liz was, except I didn't grow up with a woman quite like Liz and that Liz does not show Bobby any affection mm -hmm. at all. It is mm -hmm. um, awful. Um, to say the least, it's almost like Liz just looks at him. And I think she thinks of her husband who died of a heart attack. And I think she all that resentment she had from him she just looks at her son and sees her husband and automatically hates him a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, reading this as an 18 year old and as a almost 40 year old, I, I, I very much remember my original reaction to Liz is just being like, Oh my God, this woman, I wanted to get by a car. She's terrible. She sucks. Mm -hmm. Bobby go with the low men. They're better than Liz. Which is <laughs> right. not true. Right. But, and then as, as an adult, I'm reading it and, you relate to her a little bit. I mean, oh, she's yeah. still wrong completely, but you get where she's coming from and she, she's hurt and she's angry and all of her hurt is coming out as anger, which is so detrimental to a 12 year old kid. And you could see that like the way King expresses, expresses how much he loves her and wishes, wishes she would touch him, you know, yes. he wants to be hugged. He just wants that affection so bad. So dealing with that and the fact that, you know, she won't give him any money for anything. Mm -hmm. And it's also very clear, though, and this is the layer I kind of missed a little more when I read it as a 19 year old mm -hmm. was, you know, Liz is definitely dealing with some stuff behind the scenes. Like it's very clear automatically that she's in some trouble. We don't know quite what it is but she's crying in bed at night she's mm -hmm. very depressed and despondent she's on the phone late at night with who we assume is her boss at work bobby's observing all these things but he doesn't really know what's going on yes and in the novel he it really leaves it open-ended for us i you know reading it i'm going is she, is she having an affair with him is he abusing her right is, and you, you can you don't know what it is and in the, the movie makes it a little clearer with with what you know um, it's with what's going on it's just this this mixture of abuse of power and a desire for a better life and trying really really hard and and being a woman in the 60s where your opportunities aren't so great right and where you're often forced to align yourself with some very low men uh you know so we have we have low men in this story that are more than just the capitalized low men that we'll yes. talk about here in a bit but These it's guys don't wear yellow coats they don't no, advertise themselves no they do not and it can be very hard to distinguish between a regular man and a low man and and it, as a woman in the 60s especially and so yeah i mean that that sympathy and that understanding i think 
And also reading it as an adult, I feel like as we approach middle age, you know, in later life, we we can sort of distinguish between explaining something and excusing something like nothing really excuses Liz's behavior, but you certainly understand where it's coming from and are able to maybe back off a little bit on on the you know but at the same time you're just feeling for bobby and what he's going through and it's uh and how these two are just completely missing each other um and you know amid all this of course bobby does have some pals that he chums around town with he we have uh carol gerber and we'll keep coming back to her because she is a, a player in in this whole saga and Sully John, that's, uh, you know, the lovable kind of jock kid uh, in, of, of the group. And uh, Carol and Bobby have a thing for each other. You know, it's just that cute little puppy love kind of kind of thing that you have when you're, you know, that age in middle school and you're starting to explore relationships and all that. And, you know, as a group, they're very cohesive and they have a, a fun chemistry the way King always captures when he's writing about kids. I mean, you could read in so many of these stories of his between like the body and this and, you know, so many others and just it. Yes. Thank you. I was, I knew I was missing a big one and, and feeling like I've, I've, I, that's my old friends group. I've been in that kind of group. It just brings it all back. And together they avoid, um, the big mean private school kids, uh, the mm-hmm. kind of bullies that roam the town. And of course, we'll come back to, to that mm-hmm. one. Because they're king bullies, so they're not just calling names. They are quite violent. Eventually, what, what really, there's a line, you know, that comes back to haunt over and over again in the story. And it, it is from Carol, because eventually these kids do find her and beat her up quite badly. And, you know, she said, at first, I thought they were joking. And then it was very, and then suddenly they weren't joking. And that feeling, that heart sinking feeling. And I think it's like when you realize that the bad guys are really there in front of you and it isn't just a joke. How many times we've all keep getting faced with that particular realization, both in interpersonal relationships and existentially. Um, (laughs) Oh, we didn't think it would go this far. I mean, how many of us have been saying that in the last, couple weeks here uh especially but here's the big show piece we've kind of laid the little bit of ground here but we got to bring in the big guy we got to bring in mr ted brodigan or bradigan as uh liz likes to keep calling him because liz oh god uh so ted is an old man who uh rents the um the apartment unit that's above uh bobby and liz's place and immediately upon seeing him, Liz despises him, mostly because he's moving into his apartment with little more than a couple of shopping bags. Shabby. Uh, <laughs> he's a very shabby. shabby. Yes. yes, exactly. So he can't be trusted. And immediately Bobby and Ted headed off as, you know, total pals. Uh, Ted is very literate, loves books, you know, so they develop a kinship over that. And there's definitely a sense that Ted is filling that void that that Bobby has been missing without not having a father uh, or having really any parental figure. (laughs) Let's face it. I mean, Liz is always at work. And when she's not at work, she's avoiding really Bobby in general bonding with him. She doesn't even go to his ball games. No sense of love. I mean, she doesn't, you've said this earlier. She doesn't even touch him. The bond between them feels very real. That's another thing that King 
really develops so well here is that friendship between Ted and Bobby. You really want that for yourself, like to to have a Ted in your life. Absolutely. To give you the books to read and which ones are going to, like, this is going to change your life. You know, what, what books are going to change my life? Please just hand them to me and then let's talk about them. Yeah. I can. Summer. It's so great. And, you know, because that's the one good thing Liz did for Bobby in the very beginning of the book, because it was his birthday. He wanted a bike, but he wasn't going to get a bike. He's been sp- saving all summer long. He's going to start saving his money to buy the Schwinn that he wants. But Liz gives him an adult library card, uh, which costs nothing at all. <laughs> but it is a great gift in terms of Bobby's perspective, because now he can read the big the big books, you know, the mm-hmm. adult books that have, he's been prevented from touching. So to him, honestly, this is a great gift for him. And Ted helps him use that library card to its fullest advantage. You know, things, of course, are complicated. So, you know, Bobby wants to save money for his bike. So Ted says, hey, I can give you a buck a week if you read the newspaper to me. And also, if you are on the lookout for some low men in yellow coats uh, around town. Uh, And he has to describe to Bobby what he's talking about. They're like these garish looking men who drive these cars that look like living breathing creatures almost and not really cars you know they look like cars but you know what i mean they're like exaggerated they're brightly colored and purple interior yeah but like big fins and you know just uh uh men who look like they can't be trusted and in addition to that he wants bobby to look out for things like lost pet signs that are hung upside down on the telephone poles Look out for kite tails that are just hanging without mm-hmm. a kite. Look for hopscotch grids that maybe have stars and moons drawn next to them. What I love about this is these are things that I think any kid would have come across in their adventures exploring their neighborhood and probably seen and maybe ascribed some weirdness to them. And so I love how King puts us back in that like lens of a 12 year old or a young kid again to see these things. And as you're walking around town, you just see those odd little things and you're like, what could that possibly mean? Uh, it, it just, it made me, it made me right back to being that person again, that was convinced there were other worlds, which is another reason I love the dark tower so much. But Bobby, as he bonds with Ted, realizes that, okay, he doesn't quite believe Ted in these low men. He thinks Ted's maybe a little eccentric, maybe even a little, you know, crazy. Um, And he doesn't want Ted to leave. And so he decides that, ah, you know, we'll just, even if when he sees a couple things, he just kind of ignores it. Like, it's not what I think it is. You know, Ted's just a little crazy. But Ted goes into these weird trances from time to time. And that's where he's kind of staring off in the distance and his pupils are dilating and shrinking uh, rapidly. It kind of freaks Bobby out um, because he's not sure what it is. So Um, so during one of these trances in particular, Ted grabs Bobby's shoulders. And when Ted touches people when he's in the middle of these trances, a special ability kind of jumps off of him and into the person he's touching. And that is a bit of a psychic ability. So Bobby picks up a little bit of that. And this is probably what, about halfway-ish through? The the story's a bit of a slow build. Yeah, Um, it might be even sooner than that because it's right before they go, he takes his psychic ability and they 
go to go the, to the be- yeah the, yeah that's right they go um spend the day on the beach and they're on the on the boardwalk and there is a um a guy playing three card monty and i love this scene so much it's it's just so great <laughs> Because <laughs> he's just this this uh, hustler just moving his cards around on the board and all these special yeah. shuffles. And Bobby just knows exactly where the, I think it was the Queen of Diamonds. He's got to find mm-hmm. that card. And he finds it every time in this sort of like slowly building kind of tense moment where the hustler is getting hustled. Or yes, so he he's thinks. not even watching the cards. He's just staring at the the guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, look at the cards. I know where it is. It was quite a quite a, and quite a scary day, too, because I think Bobby at that point doesn't understand why he knows what he knows eventually he ties it back to that moment but because he also starts having really horrible dreams and he can see some things in his mom's mind you know so he gets a little more insight into what might be going on with her although we don't really get a lot we just know it's just worse than what we might assume again we're we're sort of like we have these like competing like pressure cookers that are happening though Mm -hmm. because as Ted starts to realize that the low men are getting closer then you know, uh, and Bobby, or I'm sorry, things are going on with like Bobby's mom and, and all this stuff. Eventually these things are all going to kind of come to a head and we're not really sure how or when, but let's back up because we have to talk about these low men a little bit. So the low men have made appearances in a couple of Kings things. In addition to the dark tower, they are agents of the ultimate baddie in the Dark Tower. So we'll just get that right out of the way. Um, but they pop up in, well, this story. Then there's the story uh, Ur, which is a short story that was written, that King wrote just for the Kindle back when the Kindle first came out. Fantastic story, by the way. It's about a cursed Kindle. It's, it's pretty great. And they're in that. And then there is also the book from a Buick 8 which I have mentioned before, another one of King's highly underrated, underread books, these Pennsylvania State Troopers take in one of these cars that's been abandoned on the side of the road, and they impound it in the garage at the, the trooper station. And occasionally, the trunk of this car opens and something crazy flies out of it that is like from a whole other... You have named one of like the three books I haven't read of his. It's on the to read show. Oh, you're going to love it. I had no idea it was connected to this. I'm very excited about that. It's beautiful. And so uh, the low men are after Ted because Ted is one of a special type of people that with his psychic ability, he can force his psychic energies to sort of break what they call the beams, which are the things that sort of hold the, the dark tower up. Uh, that's the the pillar of all existence. Let's yes, just call it the that. The reason there's reality. Yeah, yeah. And so people like Ted are gathered together in the where the tower is, and they they call them breakers. And he's breaking mm-hmm. the beams uh, with his brain <laughs> over time. It's a it's a process that takes a very very mm-hmm. long time. And we see breakers also pop up in other short stories and works of kings, uh, most notably the story called everything's eventual in the collection everything's eventual and you see ted pop back up in the dark tower uh later dark tower stories and it's just uh he's he's a player man uh so we just i wanted to get that out of the way because i feel like there's probably some tower people listening we're going what are you gonna bring that up and I feel like also we just have to explain what the hell the low men actually are in the greater context of the universe. Yeah, they're kind of like police officers. Yeah. yeah, 
for bad. Oh yeah, they um they're very creepy and as as we eventually learn they also are not quite human. I mean they appear sort of human. <laughs> yeah. But they're they're basically I think it's are they isn't it that they're called the Tehin? I think they're called I can't remember the actual name of the of the creature, but basically they are like giant birds and other kind of animals and they're and rats, but they have like human skins pulled over them and they don't fit very well and like think a little bit about the guy from men in black uh the a giant roach <laughs> and the edgar suit <laughs> oh edgar your skin's falling off <laughs> yeah 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 so a little bit a little bit like that so they're like agents and they and ted keeps um escaping and he can go pretty much any place in time from given his abilities and where the tower exists and the best thing about the dark tower is really i mean you can almost get to any reality you want to on any level of the tower so the way ted escapes and to when he escapes is uh kind of up in the air and i'm not sure if they covered exactly why he came back to this particular time and place why he decided to go back to 1960s connecticut yeah i don't think there was ever any sense of why he chose it i guess my i just always kind of assumed you know here's kind of a sleepy town yeah and sort of a time before the world really kicks off right it's sort of because the 1960 i would say is uh you know vietnam hasn't quite amped up to what it became after kennedy's assassination and of course after kennedy's assassination i mean really it was not a good place to be you have leaders getting, you know, assassinated left and right. The war is getting out of hand. Morale's low, economy's tanking. It's just, you know, one one catastrophe after another. So really, I could see, yeah, that's maybe the last stop before America just completely starts rolling downhill. And, you know, we're still on that downward <laughs> uh, roll. Yeah, uh, yeah so um, I can't think of a better time after that. Maybe sometime in the mid-90s, there probably would have been an okay time to hang out. But Ted realizes, well, he's already known. He knows that Bobby's been lying to him about not seeing the low men. It was more like he sort of led Bobby in to his own world a little bit. And I think he wanted Bobby to know him in some way. Cause I think that was the other thing about Ted. I think Ted needed Bobby almost as much as Bobby needed him. Yeah. It's a lonely existence. I mean, he, this isn't a life that lets him have friends. So to, to move somewhere and to find a kindred spirit like that, I mean, you want to hold on to that with both hands. It becomes clear though, that the low men are getting closer. And as that's becoming clear, Liz She's kind of warmed up a little bit to Ted. Well, not warmed up, but she she has a, an event that she's been invited to by her boss and some of their co-workers. And it's in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, which is a little bit of a drive. And Bobby has nowhere else to stay because Sally John's uh, family is on vacation. So really, Ted's it. And so she agrees to let Ted watch Bobby while she goes to this thing that she thinks will elevate her career though i think we even know deep down what she she even knows what she's in for when she goes away on this trip and that's that these men these low men lowercase are going to do some pretty horrible things to her at this quote-unquote seminar we even have a pretty good idea that she's heading into something that's way over her head that isn't good and she goes anyway herself knowing this just in the in the hopes that maybe something good can come of it which again, we see this theme play out 
over and over again throughout all these stories, this whole going along with something that you know is bad. With the hope. That you hope it'll get better or you hope that you could just survive it. You hope that maybe it won't be as bad as you think. Uh, so many reasons that people go along with things they know they shouldn't. And at the time, they don't even know why they're going mm -hmm. along with it. And we'll come back to some examples of that in, in the other stories. But yeah, Liz is gone. And at this point, Ted and Bobby really have like their bonding time, you know, because they go to the movies, he takes them to see Village of the Damned. They, you know, eat man food, like beans and franks and you know they they're having just the time of their lives and so ted takes bobby along with him because ted wants to place a bet at a kind of a seedy gambling establishment that is on the bad side of town and again we're, what we're starting to see is bobby transitioning from like the innocence of childhood and leaving a lot of that behind as he goes into Bridgeport. That's where they were going. That's right. They're going into Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is not a very nice place, I guess, in 1960. And they go into this establishment. They meet the people there. It's just, uh, you know, Ted goes into a back room to do his gambling business on this boxing match that he wants to bet on because he's looking to make a chunk of change in order to get some escape money because he knows he's got to get away from the low men. I think also this is where Ted might be using some of his ability to know the future <laughs> or maybe what happens so he can kind of like, or he helps them fix the fight. There's like some. Yeah, he, he hasn't, he knows someone who's fixing the fight and they tell him about the fixing. Yeah, yeah. So Ted knows he can stand to win a, a, a good chunk of change from this fight. Um, and then they take a cab back to town. There's some things that happen between there, but I'm trying to move it along a little bit. And, you know, they get back to the apartment. And, you know, Bobby goes out for a walk. And that's where he finds Carol Gerber, who's been beaten up very badly in the park. And this is a very pivotal moment in this story, because it reverberates throughout all of these stories, as we'll see. This is one of those point of no return instances for carol this is a, a life-changing i mean life-changing moment for her for bobby for ted but oh for sure for sure and because one of the boys that helps beat her uh will come to him he ends up being a major player uh in a story that comes a little bit after this one and so we see the the sort of ripple effects of all that but carol's shoulder has been dislocated because they beat her with a baseball bat and it knocked her shoulder out of the socket. Bobby, in this extreme physical feat, like picks her up and carries her up the hill to his apartment where Ted is there. And Ted helps her. And in doing so, he has to loosen her shirt up and get a look at her shoulder, you know, and all that. Well, yeah, I can't take her shirt off over her head because it will hurt her. So he has to cut it off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you already know, I, even if even on your first read, as you're reading this, you know, yeah, anyone who hasn't read this and is listening to this knows what's about to happen. Yeah, right now. yeah, you already sense it. And because we already know now that Liz got into some bad trouble. We're seeing some fl br very brief flashes of it. And in the moment that Ted resets Carol's shoulder and kind of you know, gets her back to somewhat okay shape, Liz walks in and oh, Lord, uh, that doesn't look good. She walks in and sees an old man and two young kids, one of them with her shirt off and uh, with some bruises on her and the other kid just there, a kid and that Bobby's is holding her, his belt in his hands. Yeah. Yeah. Ted's belt. Bite down on. Yeah. Ted's belt off. Yeah. Ted, 
taught Kara to like bite the belt while he set her shoulder back uh, and to like catch the pain, which I really, um, I liked that part a lot. I've thought of that so many times <laughs> over the years and I've been in pain. I was like, I need someone's belt. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It was just such a, a great moment. But it, yeah, in that moment of when Liz walks in, just she doesn't even take time to answer questions. She gets immediately violent and take into account too, that when Bobby observes Liz, she's also, she's got a veil over her face, but she looks like she's been beaten up very badly herself. Um, so imagine coming from this scenario where you've been essentially, and I'm just going to use rough terminology here, gang raped at this sex party and beaten around and passed around and God knows what other horrible stuff they did to her. And then you come in and you see this. And your and your instinct is to not trust this person to begin with. Yes. And yeah. so I can actually very easily put myself into Liz's shoes here. Not because I've been, I've experienced this, but as just an empathetic person, mm -hmm. I can absolutely see like nothing but tunnel vision in, in that moment. And I feel like her reaction is very much the only possible normal reaction, given all the circumstances at play there. But then it just gets worse. It doesn't get any better. In fact, Liz gets even more hateful and more obtuse as the scene goes on. And she also physically abuses Bobby, which I feel like is completely unforgivable in that moment. I feel like that is because I think what she is is taking out all this resentment and and, un, and irrational hatred she has for Bobby. She picks him up and throws him when he tries to stop her from hurting ted she's throwing coffee tables around she's i mean she is completely off her rocker in this moment but she uh she does eventually calm down and they have a discussion that ends up being very revealing ted says he was about to leave town anyway but then he also confronts liz with some knowledge that only liz would honestly know about what Liz has been up to um, some unethical activities that she was participating in with her employer prior to this trip to Rhode Island. And they come to a very cold accord, which is you get the hell out of here by tonight. And I never see you again. And that's that I'm going to go out for I'm going to go walk Carol home. And when I come back, you're gone. That was the arrangement. Well, it wasn't that easy, was it? Oh, never is. You know, you think, and I'd forgotten about this part because I hadn't read the story in 20 years. So, you know, so I'm getting to the part where I'm going, okay, that's right. Yeah, Ted. But how did they get him? They do get him, right? Of course. Of, of course. course. Yeah, they do. But I Thank forgot. About this. Of course they get him. <laughs> yeah. And I had forgotten how Liz had played a role in that because she went out for her walk. She took Carol home. And then she saw a lost pet sign that said, looking for our lost cat our, our beloved brodigan i think it was the name of the pet I think they, they named the pet brodigan i think and she connected the two dots because by this point she already knew ted wasn't who he said he was that he was you know so she knew ted was not uh a, a comptroller for the city you know law you know way back when and all this stuff like his original story that he had used and so she calls the number and she essentially turns ted in for the reward Reward, yep. And Bobby, having discovered this, because uh, I think he found the pet sign in his mom's room while she was sleeping. The yeah. flyer was in her purse. So he convinces a cabbie to drive him into Bridgeport at night, or so he could try to intercept Ted and let him know that the low men were coming. Well, 
you know, Bobby being dropped back into this place, it's suddenly a lot more dangerous now because it's nighttime. There's a lot of bad elements around. Uh, he he nearly gets beat up by a gang. I mean, it's just a, a bad experience. And then he gets back to the bar where Ted was going to pick up his winnings from the bet and finds that the low men have already been there and they've kind of like enchanted the area a little bit. And uh, well, to cut to the chase... He sees Ted come out of the bar. The car comes screaming around the corner. The low men get out and they nab Ted, but Bobby runs after him. And this is the moment that I think, again, turns. It's that pivotal moment. There's another one of those where every every character in these stories is put to a very particular test that, uh, depending on what they choose, has very dire uh, or very big consequences down the line. And this is where Bobby confronts the low men face to face. And they are absolutely terrifying creatures. And they ultimately offer, <laughs> although we're all screaming to Bobby, like they, because they offer to Bobby, you can come with us. You can be with Ted, but we know no. as readers of the dark tower too, <laughs> like we know what's on the other side of that door. Um, so we really don't want Bobby to go. Um, but we also just can tell that it wouldn't be a good deal anyway, but Bobby has an opportunity to go and be with Ted. He, he said, no, he was just too scared at the, at the end of it. You see the last little kernel of his childhood and he grabs onto it and it's what saves him. But then, once Ted is gone, that kernel dissolves completely and Bobby is not the same. You know, he becomes a very angry kid. And that's, I think, the most tragic part of this whole story. How, I mean, how did you feel watching Bobby just become what he became? You almost feel like it's two completely different characters, but you mm -hmm. can't not experience that type of personality upheaval going through what he went through. You know, if you, if you look at this very literally as a coming of age story, he became this kind of asshole kid. Yeah. And that's just, you know. Yeah. He beat the hell out of some kids and he spent a lot of time in juvenile hall. He was always being brought home by the cops. Um, Liz ultimately, well, first of all, when Bobby comes home from that whole showdown, he, he was driven home by the, the bookie at the gambling place and he has Ted's winnings. Uh, which total, I think, about $3,500 or something, which is a nice chunk of change. It's, heck, I would like to have $3,500 yes, now. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, 1960, I mean, that's got to be like 10, 15 grand. I mean, I'm, that's that's just a ballpark guess on my part. But he gets back with that money and he just gives it to Liz. And Liz tries to say that she didn't, She they offered her the money and she said she didn't want it and all this, but that was a total lie. He knew that was a lie because he had some of Ted's psychic energy on him from their departure and even if he didn't though i'm it's it's amazing how tuned into liz bobby is bobby is so desperate for her approval that he just knows her and understands her and if i do this she'll do that if i do this she's going to do this so i i think even without that psychic ability i think he would have called her on it immediately definitely definitely and liz was very much motivated by her greed through this whole story i mean it's it's largely why she stuck with a situation that she knew was a very bad one and uh she had material desires i mean that and i can kind of get that too you know when you are 
unmarried, you know, you're a single mother and you're just trying to make your way in the world and you have this opportunity to have stuff. I mean, it's just, um, I can, I get it. I really get it. But Liz, to her credit, does take that money and try to do some good with it. She goes and gets her real estate license. She and Bobby move uh, to another town and, and start over. And, you know, she she moves her way up in the world. You know, she she does really well at the real estate business. She had an old friend who also worked for this company under the same boss, and she left very suddenly. And so they formed a kinship. And she bought a house and they have a pretty good life. But Bobby is lost at this point. It's really a shame that he didn't get a chance to enjoy any of this because the the means by which she got that money to make her life better destroyed her son. And destroyed the lives of a lot of people. Oh, oh, for sure. So, uh, so of course, he goes through life very, very angry and um, almost certain to spend his life in prison um, where, where he's heading. And also his friendships dissolve because he has a big falling out with Solly John and they managed to patch it up a little bit, but they were never really friends after that. Mm-hmm. And Carol, who was like his, his great love first kiss and you know, the whole thing. And even they gradually grow apart. They keep in contact through letters after Bobby moves away, but even those grow farther and farther apart. And it's clear that Carol's going through some things and, you know, we'll find out some of those things later on. But then Bobby gets a letter that's not marked. I think it came to Carol. Didn't it come? Cause Carol sent it yeah, to him. He, he knew they were moving. So he told Carol, if Ted writes to you, I'm giving him your address. So mm-hmm. he's going to write to you. Can you please deliver this to me? Cause I don't know where we're going to end up. Yeah. And the note that Carol sends Bobby with this accompanying letter is very, it's, it's just very brief. It's not Not very friendly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, hope you're well. See you later. (laughs) Here's this letter. And it's just an unmarked envelope and Bobby opens it and out spills these rose petals. And immediately again, another nod and wink to the dark tower people. Such a good one. Such a good one. <laughs> oh my god, most beautiful thing ever because um surrounding the dark tower is this field of blood red roses as far as the eye can see. So it's very clear that those are roses from there and they have almost like a an otherworldly quality to them. And suddenly Bobby feels a peace in his heart because he knows that Ted is free again. And then the story ends. <laughs> <laughs> so and 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 we're left with like such yearning you know because we just want to know more but then god it really the story just changes in such a big way it's such a big yeah first time i read this i remember kind of thinking like is my book put together wrong yeah <laughs> like is this was this bound incorrectly what's happening yeah oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah because i mean it doesn't get much different than this we start the next story, Hearts in Atlantis, the title story, with a, a kid named Pete. He's an 18-year-old freshman at the University of Maine. And this story, we are not getting any real supernatural here. We have straight-up realism. Actually, f- most of the rest of these stories are, uh, although with a little bit of difference toward the end. Um, but here, when I first read this story, by the way, I had an immediate sentimental connection because what I didn't realize was the term hearts was referring to, well, there are double meanings, but in this Mm -hmm. instance, referring to the game, the card game, hearts. And my husband and I are 
fanatical about the game hearts. <laughs> well, that and Canasta. We are big nice. hearts and Canasta players. And he and I used to play online this in this hearts tournament. We were just huge on it, you know, back in those days, in fact. So as I'm like, you know, we we're active in our hearts playing phase when I read this story. And so and I'll get to that in a second, because Pete, he shows up at the University of Maine. He's a working class kid and it's a state college. So you have a lot of kids that are coming in that aren't rich, that don't have a lot. They're there because of various loans, Pell Grants. And it's all dependent, of course, on your academic performance. You're going to keep that government money to afford to keep going to college. And of course, it's more than that. Going to college back then was your only way to not get drafted. So um, other than, of course, having some medical exclusion, you know, but if you're a healthy, able-bodied person who would otherwise qualify for the military, but you don't want to go fight in a war, then you go to college. And that's what all these kids are there for. Well, <laughs> A little too much realism. A little bit, because Pete walks into the the commons room in his his dormitory, and he encounters this real POS dude, uh, Ronnie Malenfant. Even the name indicates, there's just something about that name that just says, man, I'm a real piece of shit. So Ronnie is just a loud, obnoxious, cackling, racist jerk, like sexist, just he's all the ists and more, right? But it's weird because you could tell he's one of those guys that uses all that to like cover up this deep sense of self-loathing that he has. Um, So he's just this very wounded guy. It's weird how King even manages to make Ronnie occasionally sympathetic. It's odd. Little slivers, little snippets where you see a flash in his eyes where he's hurt and then just... Yeah, and he has some actions here and there that I'll get to that indicate that, okay, he can have a little bit of character now and then. Um, But uh, so Ronnie, you know, he's like, ah, yeah, cuss words out the, out the yin yang here uh, that I won't worry about quoting, but you know, uh, come play the heart, come hunt the bitch as they call it. Cause that's the queen of spades. And that's a very important card in the game of hearts. And, and so whoever flushes that out, you get 13 points and, and hearts, the fewer points you get, the, the uh, better. You don't want points and hearts. But they learn how to turn the game into a gambling enterprise. And so they start making wagers on the games. And it gets very compulsive. My friend Terry Lynn Coop, who was on an episode recently on Night Shift, we were talking about this story. And she said she read somewhere that King, this is very autobiographical for him, because it was actually Spades games that they were addicted to playing when King was in college. And he was watching kids flunk out. That makes sense to me. Reading this one is more so than almost anything of his that I've read other than on writing made me think there's memoir in here. There is so much truth in this in this fiction so So much much, so much and it's written from the first person and king narrates this story in the audiobook so it really feels like he's telling you his own story um i did not love this story the first time i read it i love the hearts references because i'm a hearts player Mm -hmm. but the story itself didn't resonate with me at the time like it probably should have but now (laughs) as somebody who constantly is competing for time in my own life 
anymore. This sense of like, things are piling up and I'm struggling to keep up and, uh, and I'm procrastinating bit by bit by bit. Granted, I don't have the threat of being sent away to war hanging sure. over my head. Um, <laughs> but that idea of these kids are pissing their lives away over a card game mm -hmm. and knowing that the consequence of doing that is flunking out of college and being sent to Vietnam is terrifying. And I think such a great story for, I think, any young person to read and go, we're all, we've all thought this way. And that, but, and we've all behaved this way. I can't tell you how many times I've pushed things off my to-do list so that I could pick up a game controller. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing is it wasn't heart. If it wasn't hearts, if this was set today, it would be like Fortnite or some right. other, or call it, you know, or some <laughs> other video game. You know? Yes. Yes. Minecraft. <laughs> right. And exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it's just one of those stories that shows like the more things change, the more they stay the same way. Our distractions have changed, but that ability to fall completely into something that consumes you and nearly makes you flunk out of school and possibly go to war and die. You mentioned that this has such a, a realism to it, but you know, hearts in, in, in Atlantis, this is this make-believe town, make-believe uh, city. Mm -hmm. And this is their magic. This is their escape. This is the, you know, the magic carpet that gets them out of this, this horrible reality that they're living in. I was curious too. I mentioned that before in, in the questions I sent you, but yeah, the Atlantis imagery and the use of Atlantis. How, I mean, is that the significance for you? That whole, it's like this mythical city that, that is now lost to, to society. I think it works on a couple levels. There, that one is, I think, definitely the biggest one where you've got this, yeah, I mean, the, this mythical, they're they're leaving their youth behind right now. And they're in college to avoid being drafted. One of the biggest, most grown up important things that can happen to you. And they're just miring themselves in this make-believe. My knowledge of Atlantis is sunk, sunken city. So when you, I saw that question, I was like, okay, I need to look up what the heck Atlantis was. So I, <laughs> teeny tiny uh, history lesson here. So apparently this, I did not realize this at all. It's a Plato story. Atlantis's founders were half God, half human, which how perfect to reference that at a college campus. I mean, what college freshman doesn't feel like a God, right? Right. Um, they made this utopian civilization that became really greedy and really bankrupt. So the gods sent fire and earthquakes and sunk Atlantis. Oh, I had no idea. I was I like, oh, so, so glad you did that homework. <laughs> I I knew like you, I came into this with very limited, like, yes, the city beneath the sea, the mythical city under the ocean kind of. But it's, you know, it's just, it's this hubris. Atlantis is, is hubris and let's, you know, make this utopia and perfect and take advantage of it and squander it. And then, Oh, it's, we're going to sink it soon. We're going to send you to Vietnam and we're going to, you're going to come back with PTSD and you're going to ruin all of your relationships. And. Oh my God. It, it, the mind blown. First of all, <laughs> it makes so much sense now. Um, and also the use of hearts, like we have the game hearts here, but of course we're talking about human hearts and the heart, human heart involved in this story, you know, is Pete. It's interesting. I always find when King uses a first person um, narrator POV character, they're usually the least interesting person in the story in terms of like who they are. And they're, you're, they're usually surrounded by 
very colorful people. Yes. Um, and so Pete is just a very kind of middle of the road guy. He's smart, but he's not like a genius. There's nothing. He's a decent hearts player. He's never been the champion of the game. He's kind of bright and, you know, he has potential to save himself. That's the one thing you notice about him as opposed to the Malinfants and, you know, some of the other side players of this game where you know they're doomed right i want to double check the spelling on that but i mean high school french malenfant literally translates to bad child (laughs) i think you're right i think you're right (laughs) i mean maybe that's on the nose but that you know you said i mentioned his his name sounded that and i've been thinking about that that's hilarious i love it i love it it makes complete sense but yeah so he meets up with uh carol gerber now did you like squeal when when she came into it? I like- absolutely did because we don't, you know, Carol literally runs out of Bobby's life, you know, and, and said, I got to go make the salad. It's really the last time he ever sees her after. And then we never see Carol again, other than through the letters she and Bobby exchanged over the years. And so in this story, when she is there in the living flesh, this grown young woman. And she's how we know that it's connected because until this yeah. point, it seems very unconnected other than. It's still happening in this when exactly and she and pete meet up and you know they form a chemistry and you know they hook up and and of course carol has an old world weariness wisdom old soul thing going on here right i love how she's like i like you pete but this is temporary what 19 year old can say that who has that knowledge who has that understanding I was not that 19 year old. No, I was no. in love with anybody and everybody who gave yes. me any attention back. Yes, in those and days. I thought they would all be forever. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Big time. And, you know, so she's so self possessed and she's so smart. So all while all this is going on and Pete and Carol got a thing going and Pete's losing himself slowly but surely to these card games and he's watching more and more of his classmates pack it up and go home because they're, you know, they're flunked out. They won't be able to catch up. They they're giving up. Um, so the room, the dormitory where they're playing these games is getting steadily emptier. I think he talked about how that dorm started with like 37 kids and only like 15 survived to the next semester. So, so hearts kind of ruined a lot of people. And in fact, Carol was saying, you got to get the hell out of that card game. Um, and meanwhile, because there are always layers, there's never just a simple narrative in, in any of these stories or any of King's stories for that matter is in the background, you have some other players, one in particular, uh, Stokely, I can't remember his name. They call uh-huh. some of the kids call him Rip Rip. He's just kind of this oddball guy. He's disabled. He's on crutches. And he's very smart, but he's also very like bitter and very unlikable. He's very angry. We don't know why at first, of course, we learn why eventually, why he is the way that he is both physically and uh, mentally. He's also very plugged in, right? So he's the one who introduces everybody to this sparrow track, otherwise known as the peace sign. And isn't that amazing? I mean, you can imagine seeing a peace sign for the first time and not having an idea what it is. Calling it this, is that, I mean, that's one of the things I'm like, that has to be real, right? When, when in the sixties, when you saw a peace sign for the first time, did you call it, the people's call it a sparrow track? I never heard that before until I read this story. Um, I don't, <laughs> I'll tell you what my, uh, experience with the peace sign was. So I always loved the peace sign. I always thought it was cool. I, well, by the time I encountered it in the eighties or nineties, I, I was like, oh yeah, peace, man. It's like hippie stuff. Uh, so, um, but I had a, uh, I was like 10 years old and I was really into new kids on the block. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it was like the first first concert I ever went to as a new yes. kids concert. Oh my god! So uh, I had a hat from that concert, and I wore it to uh, the Wednesday night uh, church group that I was part of. Didn't know at the time that there were people that thought that said the peace sign was demonic, and it was an upside down broken cross. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah so i was told i wasn't allowed to wear my peace signs to church <laughs> so this thus begins the beginning of the end of my spiritual christian path um sure. yeah yeah so i but it i was drawing peace signs on everything i just thought it was a cool symbol anyway so and isn't that amazing i was the same way same thing it's like oh it's just oh peace yeah it's it's hippie dippy whatever and like to look at what it meant and how important it was in the sixties. I almost feel even, I mean, I was, you know, when you were a kid, you don't know any better, but you almost feel like, Oh, I, yeah. I, I did a peace sign dirty because this was a meaningful symbol. Yeah. It was, um, it was a, a symbol for nuclear disarmament. Yeah. I think that was the original uh, meaning for it. Uh, it was a Bertrand Russell, I think, was credited with the peace sign. And a lot of that's mentioned in the story. So you get a really great little piece of history that you might not realize. And so, you know, eventually it starts to become associated with the anti-war movement and kids just start wearing them. And of course, this um, Stokely kid has a, he starts wearing it on his jacket. He's participating in some rallies. We also learn that Carol has been going to some of these <laughs> And we get flash, not flashes forward so much as uh, Pete talking about future events throughout the narrative. Like eventually, you know, he was part of the Chicago uh, 7 riots, yes. you know, happened yes. uh, in in uh, the 60s. If anybody ever saw recent Netflix movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7, fantastic. highly recommend it. Definitely. Highly recommend it. So yeah. fantastic. Very good movie. Yeah, it is. It's worth pointing out that, yeah, this is written in first person, but Pete is an adult recalling these events. So you yes. get, you know, all of his beautiful hindsight. Yeah, yeah. And you know that all of these people, most of these people either, they go on to become soldiers in the war or they go on to become anti-war activists hugely involved in anti-war movements and mm -hmm. um carol gerber in particular um becomes very deeply involved in these groups these really far left groups mm -hmm. that even you can pick up some real life uh, versions of these back in the day like the weather underground and you know some of these groups that did like bombings and things um that's sort of what she gets involved in. But we know this only through the other characters referring to that, like down the road. In fact, she's presumed dead by most of the first person narrators and the rest of these stories, as we'll see. And so we know that Carol gets deep into this stuff. But meanwhile, on the college campus, you know, we, we see a lot of these kind of elements like forming the college administration is starting to get involved because there's some civil disobedience kind of happening. There's graffiti, there's a graffiti incident and all that. But what precedes or kind of precedes that is Stokely on his crutches. This moment, by the way, that I'm about to talk about is probably one of the most deeply human moments that you'll probably ever read because it for king the way that he presents this is in that beautiful way that shows the ugliness of humanity and probably the most relatable yes. way yeah reading it you can't help but just i mean I, I feel like i had tears streaming down my face while i was reading it and just 
but understanding it completely, not, not, not blaming anyone, not being mad at anyone. It really, it points to how we all get swept up in these horrible moments and we don't think first often that sort of herd mentality that that mob mentality um so stokely on his crutches it's been snowing it's been a horrible winter storm and he's on his crutches on the quad or somewhere around the campus and you know long story short it's very slippery out there it's very very wet and he's trying to get up this hill this icy hill and he keeps slipping back and falling. Well, eventually he falls. But he, the way King is describing this like whole event, the motions and the the sort of movements that Stokely is doing is highly amusing to this group of kids that is looking out yes. the window. Watching this happen from the Hart's room window. Exactly. And and Pete is part of this and pretty much all of the card players and even, you know, the other sympathetic characters are part of this group. Well, they're all laughing their asses off, you know, watching this happen, which is on the one hand, completely cruel, but on the other hand, also something that I think everybody in some way has found themselves participating in being amused by someone's misfortune this way, uh, in that ugly way that you just don't want to think about, like, oh, God. Especially when you've got so much tension happening. I mean, this this entire story is just loaded with it. And this is yes. the release. This lets this tension out. It, yeah, it, 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 you're very right about that. Because we, you know, have these kids that are on the verge of flunking out of school. We're watching so many casualties that, in fact, I think one player even tried to kill himself. Um you know, so there, there is a lot of serious shit happening. So yes, the, very good point bringing up that tension, because I think that's, that's definitely we're indulging and in just letting that out. And then Stokely falls over. And he's caught in a, um, a very deep puddle. And they realize he can't quite get out of it. And he's kind of paralyzed from the like the legs, his legs are paralyzed. And he can't maneuver himself out of the situation. He And so they realize, oh, shit, he's actually drowning. So then we have Pete, Skip, I think, is one of the, uh, the other ones. And there's a couple other friends that are made, you know, friendships that are really formed here. And Ronnie, to hey. his credit. Yep. They all run down to help him. And at this point, Stokely is saying, no, leave me alone. Let me die. He's a very, very angry and physically unwell, he has a very bad cold, which yeah. has probably developed to pneumonia at this point. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, fuck you. I've just get your hands off me. I don't want your fucking help. I mean, he's very, very angry person. At this point, isn't he saying, leave me to die? Let me be. Leave me here. Yeah, he wanted to die. But they pick him up and they carry him into the infirmary. And some of them are still even kind of laughing a little bit. Like, they're still taken by the the giggles, you know, at this point. And that's where we learn that uh, Stokely's parents and sister were killed in a car accident. He was also in that car accident. That's how he ended up on those crutches. And he's been wanting to die ever since. You know, he's been very angry at the world. And one thing that way that he's been dealing with this is by participating in these anti-war demonstrations. In fact, he paints a big... um, peace sign i think on the side of the dorm building or something and we see then they all kind of come together 
and defend Stokely from the college administrator who wants to get to the bottom of these un-American activities. Yes. And, and he's the one who's been wearing the, the peace sign. It must be him. And then they all get out and show all of their peace garb, which some had been there for a while. And some, I think, maybe ran in their dorm and drew them on and be like, look, I have one too. Yeah, yeah. So they couldn't really pen <laughs> it on Stokely. And so it was just a beautiful little moment. And essentially, the, the story kind of, again, it kind of ends on a bit of a... Like, it just comes to, like, a bit of a slow stop. I mean, you do know that, like, certain people go off to fight in the war. And, and mm-hmm. uh, of course, Carol, in one of her moments, talks about how, um, you know, she brings up, like, the story of what happened to her in the park and and uh, how, you know, that was the kindest thing anybody ever did for her was, uh, well, first, Bobby that rescued her. And then also knowing that Bobby ended up beating the shit out of the kid that did it, the main player in that gang. And that, I mean, she, so she, you get to see Carol's side of that whole event and how it sort of fueled the person she became down the road, which is again, linking these stories together in a really beautiful way. Am I missing anything else from how this story ends? Cause I'm trying to think because she leaves the school she leaves. Yeah, and she then... goes. She goes back home to take care for of her mom, who, um, you know, her parents are divorced at this point. Oh, uh, and He's, yeah, she she sends him a Christmas. Oh, that's right. Card. That's right. And I believe sends him the book. Right? Yeah, Lord of the Flies, which is the book that Ted first gave to Bobby. To Bobby, which cemented their friendship. Yeah, and he's, she's like, hey, you know, someone I used to know loved this book. I think you might like it. Yeah, Lord of the Flies comes in and out quite a bit in this in this story it's it's whole symbolism of is you know very important in a lot of ways to discussing uh vietnam because it just talks about like that sort of loss of innocence and the way that humans can devolve into their baser selves in certain circumstances you know and and so so this pops up again again yes she gives pete the cop a, a copy of the book and and signs it uh, for him, she uses, puts a little inscription in there. And Pete carries that book with him pretty much everywhere he goes on every protest he goes on. His heart is with Carol forever. So it's like Carol just creates these uh, people that just fall in love with her, you know, um, and she can't be had. I think Carol is just, uh, you know, she is nobody's woman, <laughs> which no, she's not. I love. I love that about her. She kind of, mm-hmm. you know, just they, they'll follow her like puppy dogs, but I, I might as well go ahead and bring this up though. Cause I'm sure I missed this on my first read through, but caught it in the second one. It's not brought up in this story, but it's brought up in the last story. It seems very clear that she ended up with sort of a Randall flag with like Randall flag, the person that was part of that movement of the bombings and stuff that she got involved in. They were saying like he had initials RF Oh. And, and it's like, and the way she talks about how she never wanted to talk about like what happened in that house that was like set on fire ever again. And the things that she saw, she seemed very haunted by them. You just blew my mind. I completely, completely <laughs> missed that. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I had to pause the story when I was listening to it. I got to that part. I think it's brought up in Heavenly Shades of Night um, more than anything. Yeah. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's easy for one to assume that King was dropping another thing. Cause of course, Randall flag is stirring up, you know, conflict. Yes. Of course he's responsible for the Vietnam war. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's for sure. 
I mean, one could absolutely believe that. And so then he's going to play to the other side and Mm -hmm. doing what he does kind of in the stand, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So uh, that's another beautiful little homage. And so, but Pete does eventually pass his classes. He graduates from college and uh, several of his friends do, but he does talk about how several of the other kids go to war. Uh, Ronnie Malenfant, one of them. And then uh, Stokely, though, becomes this kind of uh, big attorney guy. He he goes on and becomes very successful, and but he's also a very uh, far left, you know, activist lawyer type yes. who's always on CNN. And and so it's interesting to Love see that. how these guys age out and how Pete himself is just. I think he became a teacher, and he's just kind of, you know, he just has this very nice little life. He got out. He got out of the trouble that he was in. So. Yeah. Um, and it and it happened because he and and a few of the other kids kind of got together and held each other accountable uh, to get their work done and and uh, and I think the Hearts games pretty much just dissolved after the whole peace sign incident. Nobody kind of wanted to play anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel so, like Ronnie kept trying to get him to come back and and then Ronnie just goes over to the war and starts playing Hearts in the jungle. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as we kind of learn, <laughs> yeah, because in the next story, which I find it's the shortest read. Well, no, I, I would say the next two stories are about the same length. They're both very short. Yeah, um, Blind Willie is the next story, and that one is from the point of view of Willie Shearman, who was one of the kids who beat up Carol Gerber, and he was probably the most contrite of them as it was happening. He kind of hung back. You get the impression that he might have been friends with Carol under different circumstances. Right, right. He was, he was always the one she was kind of like, Will, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, we're, we're friends. Like, why are you letting your friends do this to me? Right. And again, it's one of those things of like going along with bad behavior, something you know is bad, but you just go mm-hmm. along. And knowing when to go along and knowing when to rise up is a constant struggle that applies in so many ways throughout this. And so Willie... After Carol gets beat up and they run away and Bobby comes to rescue her, he drops his baseball glove uh, in the park. And Willie later comes along and takes it. And he erases Bobby's name off the glove and writes his own name over it. And from that point, (laughs) and this glove glove becomes very significant in a lot of ways. Carol even mentions that glove when she tells Pete about the whole incident. Um, saying that she told Pete or she confronted Willie about the glove saying that's Bobby's glove and Willie denied it. And he's like, no, it's my glove. Even though she could see the, where the ink had been rubbed off, but he carried that glove everywhere with him. I can't remember if he still had it as an adult. I think he did. I think he did because it just, just a kind of a talisman for him. That's right. And yeah, cause it was, that's right. It was in Vietnam with him mm-hmm. because when he goes over to the war, he and Sully John, are fighting together in the same company but sully who had dated carol during their teenage years didn't know that willie was one of the kids that beat carol up but willie knew he always thought like oh what if sully ever found out and that kind of haunted him a little bit and then willie saved sully's life in this attack that they're involved in and Willie's tempor- temporarily blinded in this explosion, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he eventually gets out of the war, comes home. Uh, the story begins with him living this very nice looking life. He's got a nice house. He has a, a, a very nice wife. And they have this great little life together. 
uh, out in the suburbs. He go he takes a train into the city, and then he has a little fake place of business, and you start to go, oh, this is all facade, isn't it? And so then he, because he has like two different person, like two different uh, lives in addition to his legitimate one, because mm-hmm. he has his like business self, and then. He leaves that business and goes to a hotel or a motel to change into his blind willy costume, which is this blind veteran, uh, like homeless gear, like his jacket, the whole get with the sign. And he stands on Fifth Avenue and takes money uh, as a panhandler. And not only that, he has a book that he writes in every day where he apologizes to Carol for what he did over and over. Yeah. It's very reminiscent of the opening credits to the Simpsons. Yeah. It's just writing. I mean, it's just, it's that it is an act of contrition. Yeah. Did any, anybody have to write sentences in a notebook for punishment in elementary school? I did like, I will not talk during history class over like a hundred times. Oh my God. Um, So yeah, he has just notebooks full of, of these apologies. And then it almost seems like he has a somatoform disorder whereby he becomes actually blind as he's doing the blind willy bit. I think it's all part of his psychological attach or like effect of being in the war and that whole event where he was temporarily blinded. I mean, he becomes blind, but there's an interesting little side bit as there always is because he has a harasser that visits him on a daily basis. It's a beat cop. And, you know, there's been other beat cops over time that have bribed him for a little bit of money to leave him alone. But this guy is a little more on the angry side. This guy, this cop is... He hates this guy. He's like, he, he sees right through him. See, yeah, he looks at me, you are not blind. I mean, he just, do we, we don't know what makes him think this, do we? No, no, we don't. Other than I think that if anything, he's probably coming from a place of huge resentment. Maybe he's, you know, he hates, uh, he hates Willie for what he did. And so he just decides to like, go, oh, you were never that guy. Cause he's never been that guy. He's, he's just kind of a pathetic, jealous POS. But the oddness of it is that the cop is actually technically correct. That, that Willie is putting on a, a, a fraud in a way, but at the same time, Willie was there. He was in the war. So both things are true at the same time, which is another interesting illustration mm-hmm. of just, the human condition (laughs) like how willie can be both sympathetic and not is kind of just fascinating to me and and on the one hand you just you kind of want him to take out that cop in fact he kind of starts to think of ways that he can deal with that cop because the cop is becoming more and more of a threat to his ability to continue this bit the cop is demanding more money and he really gets the sense that the cop will actually follow him one day and expose him So uh, this is a very short vignette of a story. There's not a lot here. It's really just that kind of you see him go to work and then you see him leave work and change into this other person. Did you get the sense that his wife knows? I had that on the tip of my tongue to ask you at first in the when we first meet her, when she he's leaving, Mm -hmm. not a little, Mm -hmm. when he comes home a little and I don't know why. She, I remember too, when he was describing his blind Willie costume, the jacket, Mm -hmm. she helped him put that jacket together. 
Maybe that was why. That was like one little inference there that I was like, she's in on it. She's in on it. She knows. Yeah. Which is fascinating to me as well. I mean, I want to read a story about her and how they fell in love and how we told her and how she found out. And yeah. Yeah. And this is how you make your living is you, you, you go into the city as this legitimate businessman and you change into a, a, Yes. A homeless veteran. And the, the detail that has to go into it because he he rents an office and he goes into his office for his legitimate business. Mm-hmm. He locks the door. He moves the ceiling panel. He crawls into the the room upstairs or yeah. downstairs. I don't remember which way he goes. Yeah. And from there, he turns into a different person where he's, so he goes from businessman to like, is he a plumber or like, yeah, a, like or it's like an or, HVAC or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Some yeah. Type of a, a blue collar job. Right. And so he goes in the businessman, he comes out the blue collar guy and then he yeah goes to the hotel bathroom and changes. It. I mean, there's just, there's, there's so much detail and nuance that has to be spot on and precise Yeah, for this ruse to work. And and it's all just what a, the way someone is trying to atone for all their wrongs. Because in addition to his uh, his notebooks of his apologies to Carol, he has a scrapbook that has all the newspaper clippings of all her goings on with the anti-war movement. Yes. And I think he ultimately feels responsible for her, not only her, but probably people that died because one of the bombs went off at the wrong time that they planted and it killed several innocent people. Mm -hmm. And uh, which is one reason why, you know, she was on the run or, you know, she died in a house where I was presumed dead. Um, So I feel that probably he feels that his inaction in the park that day kind of led to her ultimate downfall. And then in addition to all the things that he saw and did in Vietnam, which we'll get a little more info on too in the next story. And I guess I could jump right into that one because this one is, again, like it's, it's again, more like a vignette. It is, um, there's not a lot of structure to this one in terms of it's, it, there is a structure, there is a bit of an arc to it, but it's just like a moment in time. It's almost like a snapshot. In life, absolutely. Yeah, you get the sense that after it ends, like Willie has a, a he's developing a plan to deal with this cop, but you don't get the sense that he's going to stop doing what he's doing. He's just going to, he's going to do this weird atonement act for the rest of his life or as long as he can get away with it. And so then we cut to why, why we're in Vietnam is the next of the short stories, super short stories. Mm -hmm. And that's where we come in with Sully John. And this is the present day. He's been a pretty successful guy. He owns several car dealerships. He uh, he's sort of a man man of the town, and had a great personality, great reputation, and of course he fought in the war with Ronnie Malenfant, Willie Sherman, several others. He is going to a funeral for one of their company men who died recently, and I can't remember how that person died. If it was natural causes or suicide. Be totally wrong about that. Weren't they all types of cancer? Like, isn't that kind of the the cancer just gets everybody? It was the Agent Orange. I think that was like brought up as part of that. Um, And this is also where they talk about a lot of those aspects of the people that came home, how they got cancer or alcoholism or drug addiction. PTSD. um, PTSD. And yeah, how every one of them, it's basically this funeral is like a reunion of the remaining members of this company and who was sort of like their CEO who of that company was there. And 
still talking about how they they never left Vietnam. And there was like a a passage from it where he talks about where the CEO talked about how in many ways it was better than what it is now. Like we're always back in Vietnam because it's better than being here, uh, which is horrible, horrible and and true and sad and tragic, all yeah. at the same time. Because he just yeah. yeah, they talk about how like uh, we never lived up to our promises. This generation, we were just screwed from the get go. It just yeah, the tragedy of being sent to fight an unwinnable war, um, and we're seeing that now. I mean, honestly, some of that same thing. The the people who fought in Afghanistan, same type of war for you know 20 years the longest running war we were in you know so the people that come home from something like that you don't even get to come home a hero you come home uh almost as to a hostile place and that's the other downside to to uh what a lot of these veterans faced when they came home from vietnam and sully in particular remembers a horrifying incident of ronnie brutally murdering uh, Vietnamese villagers, like huge atrocities. And other people in that company were committing similar atrocities against these villagers that they believed were, and probably were uh, firing on on the soldiers, you know, and which was kind of, that's sort of the what made Vietnam such a quagmire uh, was everybody, all the villagers, everybody, they were armed and they were all fighting, you know, it's the same thing that made Iraq a quagmire, Afghanistan a quagmire, there's no clearly definable enemy. <laughs> and so mm. it, it, there's no, uh, there's no rules, everything just kind of gets thrown out the window. And so some of these atrocities that are detailed are very, very brutal. And in fact, I think one of the COs ordered another uh, soldier to shoot one of the soldiers who was committing these are, had lost his mind. They were just like, take him out. <laughs> Get him. Yeah. It was just, yeah, just a nod. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and, and you have to wonder how many, how many were lost that way. Mm-hmm. Because the people that were going over there to fight, when they're drafted in, these are not trained soldiers. These aren't volunteer forces, a lot of them. These are guys that were drawn out of a hat and given a gun and say, Hey, go, go shoot Charlie in the jungle. And you know, they don't know what they're doing. They're not trained for any of this. And a lot of them lose their damn minds given what they see, you know? So Sully sees all of this Mm -hmm. and Sully stood by again. We have another moment of someone standing by and witnessing a horrible thing and not doing anything about it. And that haunts him. And in fact, literally, he's haunted by the ghost of that woman that Ronnie basically gutted with a bayonet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she comes running out. And they, yeah, she's not she's not armed. They, they talk no. about when she's running out. She thinks they're there to help them. And she's screaming. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So Sully, <laughs> uh, they, he attends the funeral. We get a little more insight as to more of the common players that are involved. You know, he mentions Willie. And Ronnie, we know what happens to Ronnie, which is kind of funny. Ronnie actually survives all this and becomes a decent guy, apparently. Hey, but Kelly, they, when they talk about who the, the 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 soldier that was ordered to go ahead and shoot the soldier, I had read that part five times. I'm like, wait, they didn't shoot Ronnie? And I'm sitting there thinking, like, I I misread that. Ronnie mm-hmm. should be the one who shot. Why was it? And I'm even now, I don't understand why they didn't shoot Ronnie and why they shot. And I'm sure there was a reason for it. There, I'm sure there's a reason. I think it was because it was like all part of that same battle. And I think Ronnie actually helped Sully and Willie. That was, I think that was the thing. He got a commendation. 
yeah. if I yeah. recall, because he like pulled Sully and Willie like out of like the explosion or fire and got him onto the helicopter. Like he did a heroic act, which was kind of again, what a mixed bag that guy is, right? Yes. Um, and I guess he tried to like make good on not dying and not getting given what he did the atrocities he committed over there mm -hmm. and then he had his chance for redemption and kind of ran for it and but it's funny the people that like sully and the ceo and some of the other guys at the funeral to talk about it they're like they think it's bullshit. yeah um that ronnie gets to go be this super enlightened happy guy while the rest of them are miserable you know and so the weird part of this story because it gets a little weird it's very weird so sully's driving home from the funeral and think he starts to hallucinate he sees the woman the ghost of the woman she's in the front seat of the car but also things start falling out of the sky like pieces of his life and his childhood and you know it's it's just I think even a piano it's just like a like a weird trippy moment yes. I, would love to, I would love to see that just on screen at some point just yes <laughs> well you know out of out of every scene out of this entire book and it is not a short book that is the scene I struggle with the most agreed I want to find meaning in the things that fall from the sky yeah yeah and why him why know? yes and I, I mean I, I'm sure it's you know, this is his last hallucination, I suppose. Yeah. But I, I, I don't understand the me And maybe the point is that it's meaningless. Maybe the point is that it could be there is no there's no meat, which is oh, how dark and drab. But another possibility, this one just kind of occurred to me as I was thinking about it, given what we know happens in the in the final story. Like, was it Ted? <laughs> Like, was there a thin spot? Because Ted gets that glove. So that was the other thing. One of the things that falls mm -hmm. is the glove. Right. And Sully ends up with it. Uh, he put the glove that was Bobby's. And it has the names rubbed out that Willie had. Now Bobby has it. Or I'm sorry. Now Sully, Sully has it. And then Sully puts it on his hand. And the woman that he is always haunted by, uh, she comforts him. And then Sully dies of a heart attack. <laughs> the end yeah. uh, and so that's it and but you're right that scene is so fascinating to me because it, it makes me wonder if he came to this intersection of like past and present and future like all within existence or something and it all just kind of literally came crashing down literally and figuratively mm -hmm. like I don't know. I mean, you're right. I struggle with that as well. Actually, when I listened to the book, I had to back that scene up three times and listen to it again and again. And I still wasn't quite sure what to make of it other than it could have been too that he was already dying, but he has the glove like for realsies has the glove because as we find out in Heavenly Shades of Night are Falling, which again, the song Twilight Time is a common thread throughout yes. this entire book that song and i'll never hear it again without thinking <laughs> <laughs> of this story so sully dies bobby we pick back up with bobby he's back in town he's going to sully's funeral mm -hmm. he wasn't going to go originally but he received a package from sully's probate lawyer and in that was the glove was Bobby's glove. 
that was found on Sully's person, and they don't know why. They had no clue how or why. How, yeah, why he had it, how it got there. Yeah, and not only that, there was the copy of Lord of the Flies that Carol gave to Pete. And not only that, but the envelope that these things came in had Ted's handwriting and a little note with Lord of the Flies that said, tell Carol she fought like a lion. Oh, yes. Because that's what he told her when he fixed her arm. So Ted again, coming back in, sort of. And so I, I wonder if part of the consequence of what killed Sully was maybe Ted was coming back through to this level of the tower. Maybe it was part of the beam breaking. Because, you know, in the Dark Tower, reality starts to kind of lose itself as the tower breaks down. Mm-hmm. And so it felt like a little bit of that. Like there was a weird part of existence that's kind of thin. Yeah. Uh, thin. Yeah. So I feel like that's the only explanation. And I could be totally wrong. And the unfortunate thing is, there is not a lot of discussion about this book. Mm-hmm. I looked for it. I was looking <laughs> for so much discussion. I need to get on Reddit. Maybe the Stephen King Reddit will have some discussion of this story. I haven't looked there because that's a rabbit hole sometimes. If I get on Reddit, I, I'm like three hours later, I'm on Reddit. I like your theory. I mean, I, I, I love... I love when you can look at something in a book and say, okay, here's the surface level of what happened. And if you accept the surface level, it's fine. But if you go a little bit deeper with it and on the surface level, he's dying. This is his final hallucinations. This is a guy who's, who's been hallucinating the ghost of a woman he saw murdered Mm -hmm. almost his entire life. So I completely buy that. He was just having these hallucinations in death. Yeah. Yeah. How, how fascinating to think that this is a thin sliver. This is a thin part of reality and then Ted can use it to drop this message to his old pal and in doing so kind of brings it all together. Yeah, it was fall from the sky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's really a really cool story. I feel like it's a necessary part of the story. I, I feel like it ans- it drops a lot of pieces, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. back, back in that are kind of missing. It just kind of ties everything together very nicely and sets things up really beautifully for that final story in heavenly shades because yeah, Bobby, you know, just came from the funeral and he's visiting the local haunts. He's since of course cleaned his life up and his mother has since died. I think he mentioned even in like the previous story that she would only live another uh, seven or eight years um, after the events of the first story. I think it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so she, you know, she had a good for a while, but Liz didn't live forever. So, and I, and I also recall, I think it was in the first story talking about like Liz just saying uh, to Bobby, how do we make such a mess of things? Like she has, she does come to a moment and that's after Bobby's gotten a little older and they've moved, but their relationship has always been very strained um, because of Bobby's like, constant run-ins with the law. But at the same time, Liz also becomes a bit of a uh, advocate for Bobby, probably because she senses she's responsible for why Bobby is the way he is. Like she stands up for him to the cops. She lets him keep coming home after he's gets out of juvie. You know, she always lets him stick with her even after everything. I wonder how much of that in this, in the scene in that, in that first story where Bobby um, basically hunts the mm-hmm. the leader of the pack that that beat up Carol and just wails on him. When the cops come and address it, where this he said you did this, mm-hmm. 
Bobby's mom has his back immediately. No, he was here the whole time. And then the cop buys it because this kid is so much bigger than Bobby. <laughs> like this little squirt beat you up. Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. And I think considering what she had just gone through, I think she respected Bobby for kicking the snot out of this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like here's a man that defended a woman, which for in her mind, after the abuse she just suffered and you know, that she's always kind of dealt with, you know, we only get, we don't get much of a glimpse into the marriage of Liz and Bobby's dad. Bobby gets a little more insight into his father whenever he goes to that gambling establishment because they recognize him and you get to see a little side of the humanity of Bobby's dad. But, you know, given Liz's bitterness, I feel like there it's one of those things where the truth is somewhere in the middle, like Liz's resentments and what Bobby's hearing about his dad. There's a whole other side to that that is a blind spot. That yes, and we have no inkling of it. I I have a theory. I think maybe he cheated on her because for someone as charismatic as he apparently was, and for her to lie about him as much as she did, yeah, that's yeah, what I came up with in my head is he must have had a. I completely agree with you. And it just shows that and King has captured this element in several of his stories when the hidden doors in a lot of marriages and uh, that people don't ever see from the outside. It's a theme I I tend to settle on a lot in my own work about the sort of hidden aspect of relationships. And myself, I've been married for almost 22 years and, and no, it's there are parts of that relationship. Nobody will ever know about or see every relationship is like that. And so another beautiful demonstration of human interaction that he just captured in that story. And there's a bit of like, just in, in, in the heavenly shades story, the way it wraps this up is you get the sense that Bobby has come to a better place overall he's found stability he's married and at this point we all believe carol's dead but of course she's not she's in the park and that moment is just you know it's so so good it's so beautiful it is because carol is very much carrying the scars of her past with her um you know she has a scar on her face literally and figuratively Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm and she is living under an assumed name. And you can only get a sense, as we brought up earlier, if she was indeed with involved with Flag and those elements, the horrors that she might have endured while with that group and the way it affected her. And I think she has a daughter. I think she's even married. And she's a she's a professor. She's a math professor. So she she really goes on with her life. She was always bad at math and she became a math professor because no one would ever assume that was Carol Gerber. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And I love to, in, in talking about Carol, uh, you and I were talking privately about this or no, it was not even a private. I think it might've been on Twitter. Just yeah. openly. We were talking about this, about how sure. in that first read through Carol was Carol, you know, but now Carol reads very differently. <laughs> I mean, yeah, reading reading uh, the extreme leftist blowing stuff up person she becomes as a child, you go, she she turned dark. She's almost a bad guy, too. And, and you know, mm-hmm. you, you only see it for all of the problems and you don't see it for any of the reasons she was doing what she was doing. And thinking about her now in light of very, very current events, you go, oh, I, I get it. I get mm-hmm. why she wanted to blow the whole thing up. You can see how someone could get 
radicalized for lack of a better word we take it tend mm-hmm. to think of radicalization sometimes in the in the sense of like someone becoming a fascist or something which is mm-hmm. very real and true and a thing but anything that would have people go from simple acts of civil disobedience to outright terrorism in the yeah. name of whatever cause you know you're taking these extreme actions it it, it definitely it's a different type of path and now yes can very much see more than ever how people can wind up on that path i would love to know what carol would be doing right now um me too in light of yes current events so stephen king when you listen to this if you could just put together just a real brief short story about uh carol's reaction to the last week or two yeah i would love to see uh see carol on some uh some of some protests you know throwing some tear gas canisters back yes protesting next to jody sweeten getting shoved over by the lpd I saw that. I saw yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, we're we're entering that time period again. And really, back in the 60s, especially the late 60s, by the time these protests really kicked up, I mean, the fights for Roe, uh, reproductive rights were already very much a thing. And the marches were happening and the demonstrations were happening. So in addition to the anti-war stuff, so it's so tumultuous. 50 years later, here we are. Pishy beach. She's like, we did this already. Yeah. Why do we yeah. have to do this again? Yeah. I'm seeing so many women from that time period going, Oh my God, here we are again. And it's a it's it's a weird new world to be walking around in right now. And it makes this story, as I was putting myself back in the headspace of it while getting ready for this episode, it just crazy how in the span of what three weeks from the time when we were planning this out Mm -hmm. to now how much things have changed and you know and the way that the story ends is one of it's just almost like acceptance and maturity and a kind of like here we are Mm -hmm. um you know we got through it but I did the best we could you know we did the best we could yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and I love how he shows her the glove and then he shows Carol the book and, you know, they just have that moment and it just kind of ends on that note. I'm looking back at the uh, the quotes at the beginning. And the third one is, we blew it. From Easy Writer. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talk about a movie that does not have a happy ending. Um, I was left to thinking like about the structure again of this story overall. I think it's really interesting that low men in yellow coats, and I guess to a certain extent, why we're in Vietnam, but the low men in particular has the Mm -hmm. most supernatural element. And in some ways, it feels like does this work? Do these clash? Or, or not? Did did you feel they clashed at all when you first read it? You know, not at all. I don't see I don't see any any clashing there. And and King, I guess King has such a kind of a magical realism approach to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're supernatural in there, but it's not fantastical it's not oh, it's very mundane top. in fact yeah, isn't it it yeah. is it's i mean he ted uh can can read people's minds and break beams and it's he's he's so closed off about it literally he, he crosses his arms and doesn't let you touch him about it so it's it's so real i don't want to say it's realistic because what do we have to compare it to he oh he does have a way of weaving in that supernatural in such a low-key way that makes it feel yes. very easily acceptable and it's and it's it definitely feels most fitting that the part of this collection that is the most supernatural is the one during the childhood 
portion of it because that's where those things are most vibrant. And his, you know, that that childhood summer, it's a magical summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and any any story that is you're telling that particular summer story, there's magic to that in as much, you know, as much magic there as there is in Ted's literal magic. Yeah. Um, and I just it's it's such a great juxtaposition to the heavy-handedness of Liz. You know, she and Ted have both gone through such serious stuff and she takes what she's gone through and it makes her really mean mm-hmm. and he takes what he's gone through and it makes him really kind which is this whole other type of magic in it yeah i i i i would have i would have never thought that it didn't match because it just blends in so well and ted brodigan is is probably one of my favorite fictional characters oh, without a doubt when he pops up again in the dark tower i think i like dropped yes. the book i like fangirl squealed when he yes. comes back he's such a different character and he's like he's seen some stuff and it makes it makes him a little less sad ted is a little yeah he's very changed uh yeah. but and it's in book seven if i'm it's in the final book is it not yeah i'm in the midst of my reread so he mm-hmm. hasn't come back yet I, okay it's the last one but i'm, I'm oh, i need to i need to get back in and reread it because <laughs> there is no magic quite like it and you learn something different every single time and yes. both about the story and about yourself honestly but i think that this book as a whole this entire collection of stories and moments that tie these characters together i feel is such a clever way of making commentary on one's generation and what do you think king do you feel that he's coming at this from a cynical place about his his generation, the boomer generation, as it were, because that's really what this is. It is a story about the boomers through there. And King is King Boomer. I mean, he he is was born, I think, in the late 40s uh, mm-hmm. or early 50s. And my husband's parents were also born in 1950. I mean, they're very much they're in their mid 70s now. And, and it is they could have related to a lot of this as well. They were in college, they went to college specifically to avoid the draft. So although he's using this lens of nostalgia, it doesn't feel overly it doesn't do what nostalgia always does, which is kind of erase rosy some blue. of the things, yes, you know? It's, it's not rosy. This, this mm-hmm. nostalgia is not rosy. No. Um, my my gut is that it's not him being critical. Mm-hmm. My gut is that it's just kind of holding up a mirror to the generation and saying, look at what you are, you know, yeah. we're kind of reflecting back on the victims of the 1960s and the victims of Vietnam. I love that mirror aspect. Because honestly, what do you do when you look in a mirror? You're looking at yourself, a reflection of like, okay, what do I see that's similar? What I also feel is important here, because I think a lot of people, young people, and I know, okay, boomer was a thing, and it's still a thing. And I kind of, okay, fine, I get it. But also understanding what that generation, a lot of them grew up in and around and why they are the way they are. Again, a lot of look at the look at the boomer generation the way we look at Liz, which is you're not great, but I can kind of understand why you're this way. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I mean, we're children of the depression. I mean, they're children of the depression, the Great Depression, and they're children Mm -hmm. of the war, they're children of well, not just uh, Vietnam World War, you know, the they grew up with parents who were in World War II and suffered all those effects. And know? they did not grow up with this understanding of self-awareness. And yes, terrible things have happened, but you can get help for it and you can yeah. 
get better and you don't have to be mired in this anger and this this resentments and or this can- binary sense of who male female you know gay mm-hmm. straight you know what i mean like you yes. are going to be this strong man toxic masculinity was had it you know heyday <laughs> very much so and so the children of the boomers well hey us for the most part my my parents were born in the late 50s they're sort of like late boomers the way that i'm a late gen xer um sure. and the way that my kids are elder gen z they're not the you know they're in their late teens early 20s mm-hmm. so it, it's uh so we're all on the cusp in in my house except my husband he's like straight gen x like 1972 his parents 1950s you know and so he is very much in that generation and and just seeing the stuff they saw and even now i mean we're living in this time of tumult that is unbelievable it and and it's enhanced in many ways by the existence of the internet and social media because we can get so much information in our faces Mm at once that they they couldn't back then but imagine waking up and hearing your president's been assassinated and then waking up and hearing that the biggest leader of the biggest civil rights movement in American history has been assassinated and then waking up and hearing that the president's brother has been assassinated the mm-hmm. president who's been assassinated his brother who was running for president has also been assassinated and you know Martin Luther King wasn't the only civil rights person assassinated too we got Medgar Evers Malcolm X so you know so many people getting popped off in this like big time people right. we don't have that and now we have the mass shootings that's, a, that's a, we do have that uh and that we have a place that with school shootings you're right and church shootings. and it's and it's having a similar effect on sort of the morale and the general psychology of the people you know the social psychology so it's interesting how it is there are some very big reflecting things going on. And I don't know what that says about us other than I think what King has always said, and this was mentioned in the episode of The Stand from last week, is King loves to show a mirror on people's attraction to violence. Well, that's what he does with Stokely. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, everyone watching. I mean, not that that was purposeful violence, but that's bad things happening that got a whole group of yeah boys laughing their butts off oh yeah yeah and and if if anything i would say try to leave with that lesson of resistance and knowing when to resist and when to rise up and when and when to stop following along because uh, one thing i will say that the that the people back then were really good at doing Mm -hmm. it was questioning authority and going up against it and there was a whole vein of that and i don't feel that quite as much with the kind of millennial into Gen Z like thing. I don't see that kind of, I, or I didn't see it for a very long time that was, right. you know, people have been largely go along to get along and, and they don't rise up in large enough numbers or if they do, I mean, look what happens, you know, in some right. of these protests. So, um, so if anything, I feel like we need more, we need that counterculture to keep countering <laughs> and, <laughs> and keep up the, the big fight because we have a lot to resist and we have a lot to a lot of work to do to reclaim. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to do it. Honestly, it's so exhausting. I feel like, you know, and it's this is I'm, I still feel so just kind of ugh after the last couple of days. And I I feel like a week ago, 
I would have had so much more interesting things to say in relation to this, but I just feel so exhausted and bummed and just, you're right, everything sucks and it's all terrible. I am normally like one of those people that uh, tries to always find a, a silver lining in, in a bad thing. Even yes. even belligerent optimist right here. Yeah, yeah. Even in mm -hmm. 2016, I was like, look, we can get through this part. It's, you know, if we can get this going in the next two to four years we can you know we did do that and then you know so i get the despondency and i get and the thing is we knew it was coming i mean back in june they released this yes. thing kind of early it was leaked and you know but even so having it official having it told and now i'm just Very like different. my husband and i make you know, I'm making little jokes about it. Like, am I allowed to drive? You know, <laughs> just joking. You know, like dark humor is my only my only salve in this world. But I'm just like, yeah, I don't know what to think. I don't know how to be. Um, and I don't know uh, quite what the next move will be at this point. It's mm -hmm. it's a very uncertain, scary world. But I feel like stories like this, where you can see where it's not trying to tell you exactly what to do, but it shows various options and outcomes. I mean, it's, yeah, it was written in, we said 99. So mm -hmm. we got what, 23 years? Oh old? God, yeah. This book, is this book is almost a quarter century old and it is so relevant. It is. It's so relevant. And it, yeah, I mean, you could, there's so much of, of this that can be swapped out with, with news of today and it still needs to ask the same questions and requires you as a, as a reader and as a citizen and as a human mm -hmm. to examine those yes. questions. And, and honestly, I would love to read more of like, say a younger author's own critical or, or honest examination of their current generation like what happened after 9 11 the people that were in their early 20s or late teens when that happened well hey that's that was me that was you yeah um <laughs> so when people who lived through that and then we pile on some disastrous wars and economic recessions and then now a pandemic and all this so it's been a very uh tumultuous generation of people well, now we're you know, it's going into other generations at this point. So we have a lot of art uh, that we can make to express yes. these things. And I guess if anything, I could come away with, which is kind of what I did in 2016, when I felt the world fall down on, on our heads was what art will we will we make examining this period? And what will people 40 years later, 30 years later, make of it? I hope it's good. <laughs> I hope we can see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and I'm sure it will. And in, in 25 years, there'll be a whole other mess of crap happening. And yeah, you yeah. know, they'll look back at what we produce and say, wow, that was, that was relevant. And that is still relevant and asks the right questions. Exactly. And I'm just glad that you and I are still free to converse openly <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> there's, there's no man holding our hands right now. Yay! Yeah, my husband's somewhere in his house. He doesn't care. Yeah. Oh. So, you know, um, but thank you so much for joining me on this. I, I, I feel like we picked this part pretty good, right? Um, I think so, yeah. I'm hoping that if people get anything from this, it's like they'll just go pick up and either reread this book or read it because I feel like we did the best we could to convey what is ultimately a very challenging book to mm -hmm talk about in in a way that justifies it completely but read the reviews of it read 
or listen to this and just know that we are coming away as people that were awestruck by this book. And I really feel that King's did not get enough recognition for, I think, the importance of what he did with this book. And, you know, it just kind of got lost in the shuffle. It's it's so literary. I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 was, I always think it's funny to, to read what he has to say about genre fiction and literary fiction and and why just because he writes genre fiction doesn't mean he can't be literary and, and brilliant. He's got his National Book Award and he deserves many more. And I think he deserves more credit for being literary and as well read and as as uh as he is it indicates you know the man is a is a a bit of a, a sponge uh in that yeah. cultural literary sense and in the way that he expresses that through his writing is it, it has a sense of infinity about it it has a sense of timelessness yeah. about it even whenever it does feel a little aged it still works on a deeply human level and speaking of literary stuff and books, what do you got going on? Where do you want people to come see you on the social medias? Tell me what what's going on with you. Yeah, um, where they should find me on the uh, so probably Twitter or Instagram. Okay, would be the best spots. Um, I'm at J Yo Garver G A R V E R at both of those. I um, am launching my website next month, so I don't have that yet to give you, but okay. I will shortly. I will um, put that on the uh, show notes, the links to your social medias. And then when you have your website up, I will put that on there as well. So, um, and you, I mean, are you, you have your book, the poetry book coming out? Is that right? Yes. The chat book um, is supposed to come out later this summer. And um, yeah, I just signed with my literary agent a few months ago and we've gone through our edits and I think her next step is to start pitching to editors. So oh, that's such a process. Yeah! <laughs> uh, I've, I've been on that roller coaster a few times. If you have any, if you need to vent, if you have any questions or just need someone, just feel free to hit me up anytime. Cause uh, I appreciate that. I'm nowhere near venting. I'm just it's, dancing around like a maniac and anytime. I mean, it's, it's so funny. Anytime she emails me, like I just burst into happy tears, like just hysterical sobs. Anytime anything for for no reason in my inbox. (laughs) It's a great, great feeling. And having a book out on submission is such a, there's no other time like it. I could tell, you know, it's, you know, when I when I get a note back that says, oh, so and so wants to have a call, there's always like, you end up taking editorial calls and talking to the editors about your book and about you. And, and it's just uh, one of those things where it's so surreal, you feel like you're watching someone else go through it. That is exactly how I've been describing it. Like right now I have left to my body and I'm watching this, this conversation <laughs> happening from above our heads. Oh, I love it. Well, it's making me want to go through it again. So I need to finish a book, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm doing a podcast. I mean, come on. All right. I will go ahead and wrap this up, but I will say again, please go check out Jacqueline on Instagram and Twitter and just be her friend because she's amazing and then check out all her work Um, and when she's super famous you'll be really glad that we caught this moment uh, in time on this podcast and if you like what you're hearing here please hop over onto my social medias uh, on Twitter at DD Darkness Time also Instagram
Instagram under the same name or uh, hit me up on an email, uh, ddarknesstime at gmail.com. Uh, we're wrapping up this season very soon here, only a couple episodes left, and then a little bit of a break before we come back and start talking about cults in season three. I have a lot of plans for that and some short episodes with just me yapping into my microphone. So lots <laughs> to look forward to there. But in the meantime, I'll see you guys with a new episode next week. Bye. Thanks, Allison. Ding Dong Darkness Time has been brought to you and produced by yours truly, Allison Dixon. It was made possible by an array of amazing co-hosts, friends, family, but especially you, the listeners. Big shouts also go out to the brilliant Nathaniel Dixon for the show art and future legend Spencer Morlock for all the music. I'll be back again soon with another episode. In the meantime, be good, you little ding-dongs. <laughs> <laughs>